Indeed. <laughs> Starting to get warm again. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, spring gave us a pump fake, and I went for it. And I hope you guys had a chance to get outside over the course of the last few days. It was beautiful, and it will be again. I love how we positioned that. If, if you're an introvert and just want to get away from people, sign up for the mowing ministry, put some headphones on, and you will love life. Absolutely, you guys. Well, we're here to worship today, not because of the Son, S-U-N, but because of the Son, S-O-N, in order to praise His name and glorify Him, and we're excited to do that this morning. We are entering back in to a study of Mark that we started a few months ago. Uh, this is a part of our remarkable series, and a few months ago when we began to look at the first few chapters of the Gospel of Mark, we saw over and over again this big message that Jesus is the Son of God. Chapter 1, verse 1 of Mark says, Jesus is the Son of God. And then we saw in account after account, he isn't just a normal man. He's not even just an extraordinary man, that he is God in the flesh, come to dwell with us. And now, in the second part of this series we are going to be looking at some chapters that are going to point out that as the Son of God, Jesus has all authority. He has all authority and all power, all control. And we're going to see in the, the weeks to come that Jesus will bring that authority to bear in and through our lives as we're involved in kingdom work. But today, we're just going to focus on this idea that Jesus has all authority and all control. We as people long for authority and control at times in our lives. But our authority and control are very limited, aren't they? Think about your body to think about how limited your authority and control are. Uh, if I ask you to stand up right now, chances are that you can do it. Because you have enough authority and control over your body in order to make that happen. But what if I ask you to go ahead right now and fly up to the ceiling and hover there like a bird and change out one of these lights for us and then descend gently back to the ground? Right? You're, you're going to look at me like I'm crazy. Because you don't have that level of control or authority over your body. What if I ask you to go ahead and warm it up in here by raising your body temperature five degrees? Or, or go ahead and grow five inches overnight before I see you tomorrow? These are things that are beyond you. If I ask you to do these things, you are going to fail at being able to do them. Because as people, we have limited authority and control over our bodies. And we have limited authority and control over our lives. Do you recognize that? Are you willing to admit that, that we have limited authority and control over our lives? Well, in the Gospel of Mark, what Mark wants us to understand is Jesus is totally different than that. That he has complete authority and control as God become man over every situation. And he's going to show that to us today in four different accounts that are meant to be taken together in order to see the authority of Jesus. It starts when Jesus calls upon his disciples to get into a boat and cross over the Sea of Galilee. 
They start near their hometowns up in the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee, and they begin to travel in a boat down towards the southeast side of that sea. And as they are on the way, Mark's gospel in verse 37, chapter 4, verse 37 says, a great storm came upon them. Waves are crashing in over the boat. Luke's gospel, speaking of this storm, says it was hurricane-like winds that hit them. Matthew's gospel uses a Greek word for an earthquake on the sea. There is an earthquake on the sea, hurricane-type winds that are coming. And Jesus' disciples recognize this very well may be the end. Where is Jesus? As this great storm comes upon the boat, as the waves are crashing in over the side of a boat that probably looked very much like this, right? This is a boat from that time period. Where's Jesus during this time? That's right. We're told that he is sound asleep on a cushion in the back of the boat. How is that possible? Well, I I think it's because he is absolutely exhausted. We found in our family that if you are tired enough, you can sleep just about anywhere. We have had members of our family fall asleep standing up. We've had members of our family fall asleep while driving. It's a different story for a different time. We've had members of our family, you're not going to believe this, fall asleep even in church. Did you know that was possible? Shocking. If you are tired enough, you can sleep almost anywhere. And over the course of the days before this, Jesus has spent day after day, morning until night, yelling teaching to thousands of people. He has been arguing back and forth with the Pharisees. He has been healing people. And as they get into this boat, he is exhausted. And he curls up in the back of the boat and he goes to sleep because Jesus is fully man. He is not God pretending to be a man. He is fully man. And he is sound asleep in the back of the boat. And so the disciples come to him and they wake him up because they want him to be awake if they're going to die right now. They're in misery, and misery loves what? Company, that's right. Come on, Jesus, wake up. You you should at least have a bucket in your hands like the rest of us. And so they come to him and they say, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? The professional fisherman who grew up managing storms on this lake wake up the carpenter-turned-rabbi in order to say, in our professional opinion, this is it. This is the one where we die, and you should be awake for it. We are about to perish. Jesus, now awake, stands up in the boat, and he does not speak to the disciples. He speaks to the wind and to the waves. And he says to them, be still. We're told that he rebukes the storm. He sends the storm to its room. And the storm goes when Jesus does that. And suddenly, everything is calm. Jesus speaks a word, and the storm leaves. Just like that. And now Jesus turns to address his disciples. And he says to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? What did Jesus want out of them? They were in a situation where it looked like they were going to die, and they were afraid. Isn't that natural? 
They were in a high anxiety situation and they were experiencing anxiety. Isn't that natural? What did Jesus want from them? I think what Jesus wants from them is to move beyond what is natural when they are overwhelmed to what is supernatural. Right? From what is natural to what is supernatural. To see his authority and his his power no matter what they face and to factor that into the situation. They didn't come to him to ask him for help. Jesus, will you calm the storm? Jesus, will you save us? They came to say, this is it. We're perishing. You should be awake for this. And Jesus says, can you please begin to operate in faith and move from what is natural, fear in the midst of a scary situation, to what is supernatural, trust in me. Well, it might very well be that my favorite part of the account is the increased fear the disciples experience once the storm is gone. Because in the next verse we read, and they were filled with great fear, mega fear. They were afraid of the storm. But now their fear has been ratcheted up, and they are filled with great fear, and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? They have greater fear now that they see that the one who is in the boat with them has all authority over the physical creation. That he can speak to storms and they leave. And they are in awe. They are in absolute awe at this point. Who then is this? This is the key question. They're asking, who is Jesus? And that's really the key question for anyone at any point in life. Who is Jesus? And they're going to get an answer to that question in the next account from a very unlikely source. The next account starts when they land on the southeast side of the Sea of Galilee in the area of the Gerasenes. It looks very much like this. And as they land there, you can only imagine the kind of condition that the disciples are in. They have been battling this life-threatening storm probably for hours They have just seen Jesus overwhelm the storm. They are in awe. And at this point, they are probably tired. They are overwhelmed. If it was me, I would just want to grab my blankie and a pint of ice cream and just sit back and chill and relax. But chilling and relaxing are not on the menu for the disciples. Because no sooner did they tie up their boat on the southeast side of the Sea of Galilee than they see a man running towards them. This man is naked and unkempt. They can see that he is crazed. They can see he's crazed from the look in his eyes. They can see he's crazed from all of the scars and self-harm that he has all over his body. What is wrong with this man? The passage says that he has a demon. That there is a demon within him. It uses another term that he is demonizomai, he is demonized, he is controlled by a demon. When we read the passage, we find out it's not just a demon, that there are multiple demons who have inhabited this man. As a matter of fact, the demons identify themselves as legion, for we are many, a name that the demons picked in order to intimidate. Right? Now, if you have more interest in this subject... I can't go into this a whole lot further, but 
We do have an Angels and Demons seminar today at 4 o'clock in the worship center at Shakopee where we will absolutely go into this deeper for a couple of hours. He picks this name Legion in order to intimidate, right? These demons pick this, this host of demons, pick this name Legion in order to intimidate. The Roman Legion was 6,000 soldiers strong. It was the most intimidating and frightening fighting force in the world at that time. And this collection of demons says, yes, that is us. We are the Legion. They have been terrorizing this entire region. And now this powerful force, they, they had tried to bind the man with chains. They had tried to rope his feet. They'd sent guards, and he had thrown everything off, supernaturally empowered by these demons. He had thrown everything off. And now he stands before Jesus. And this most powerful demonic force in the region, when he stands before Jesus, whimpers out, what have you to do with me? Jesus, Son of the Most High God, I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Right? Who has all authority and control? This legion, the most powerful spiritual force in the area, recognizes, Jesus, you have all authority and all control. You are the one in complete charge in this situation. You're the one who has all say, and all authority. The disciples asked the question in the boat, who is this man? And who is it that answers the disciples' question? A pretty unlikely source. This collection of demons named Legion answer the question and say, he is Jesus, son of the most high God. That's who he is. This collection of demons recognize Jesus' authority and they ask him not to destroy them but to instead be sent into a herd of pigs. Now, as you're reading that, you may ask, why is there a herd of pigs in Israel? Right? Pigs were unclean for the Israelites. Why is there a herd of pigs in Israel? The answer to that is because here in the region of the Gerasenes, on the southeast side of the Sea of Galilee, there are a number of Jews who had given up on the law and on righteousness in order to join with Gentiles to raise pigs to sell to the Gentiles. They had given up righteousness. They'd given up God's commands in order for their bottom line, in order to make a buck. And so Jesus gives permission for these demons to go into these unclean pigs. And immediately, the pigs sense their presence and run off a cliff and die. What a scene, right? What a scene. And word of this scene spreads. And soon, people from all of the towns around, they come to see what is going on. And when they come, what do they find? They find this demoniac who has been violent, who has been out of his mind, who has been naked, instead clothed and in his right mind and peaceful. What a miracle, right? What power and authority Jesus has. And how do the townspeople from around there respond to it? They invite Jesus into their towns to worship him and to serve him. No, if you've got your Bibles open, you know that's not the case, right? Mark 5 makes it very clear. They are overwhelmed with fear, and they ask Jesus to leave. Why are they afraid? Well, the Bible doesn't actually tell us what they're afraid of in this situation. 
it may very well be that they are afraid because legion has been wreaking havoc in their region. And now someone and something more powerful than legion is here. And they may just be saying, ah, I don't know what that's going to do. And so there may be fear in that. They may also be afraid for their lives and their livelihood. This Jewish rabbi has shown up on their side of the Sea of Galilee, and within just a few moments, hundreds and hundreds of their pigs, their livelihood, have run off a cliff and drowned. And they are saying, whoa, what is he going to do with the rest of what we're raising here? And so that may very well have been their fear. They ask Jesus to leave out of their fear, and what does Jesus do? He leaves. Because Jesus does not stay anywhere that he is not wanted. Jesus never forces himself. He is asked to leave, and so he will leave. But before he does, he commissions this man who had been filled with legion to be his missionary in the area. He tells him, I want you to go to these, these ten cities in the region known as the Decapolis, and I want you to share with them what has been done in your life. This can't, man can't know a lot of Jesus' teaching at this point. But Jesus says, you've got a testimony. You've got a testimony of how you've been saved by Jesus. Go and share that with everybody in this area. And so as the man goes to share his testimony, Jesus and the disciples go back to the boat. And Jesus' disciples at this point have to just be shaking their heads. Who is this? That the physical creation obeys him. And storms leave when he says the word. That the spiritual creation obeys him. And the most powerful spiritual force in the region takes a flying leap off a cliff in pigs when he commands it to happen. Who, who is this? Well, as they get back in the boat, they cross back over from the southeast side back to the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee and to their hometowns. And when they arrive back on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, they are met by thousands and thousands of people. Jesus is at the height of his popularity, and there are thousands of people who are crowding in in order to be near him at the shore when they land. As a matter of fact, Luke's gospel says that they crowd in so much that Jesus is almost crushed to death by the movements of the crowds towards him in this situation. As Jesus gets out, among that crowd is a man named Jairus. What do we know about Jairus? Well, we're told that Jairus was the ruler of the local synagogue. And as the ruler of the local synagogue, he would have been a well-respected man. As the ruler of the local synagogue, he would have been a well-to-do man. As the ruler of the local synagogue, he would have been a man that others looked at as an authority there within their community. What else do we know about Jairus? We know that he had a 12-year-old daughter who was seriously ill, fighting for her life at this point. Now, I want to just take a minute and invite you to think about how much our little girls mean to those of us who are dads. They don't mean more to us than our sons, but it's different, isn't it? When my son would face tough things in school, I, I might encourage him, I might walk alongside him through it, but inside there was always this part of me that was like, yeah, good, you need this. 
When my daughter faced tough things at school, I was like, what? My princess. And you just want to punch the people who are involved, right? Because dads, our daughters, they're our little girls. And it's so special when we hold them when they're little. It's so special when we take their hand and walk with them during their first steps. When they jump up onto our laps as they've learned to read a book. When we watch them in those early, awkward preteen years, it is all special to us as dads. We love every bit of it. And Jairus has now received a diagnosis that his daughter is not going to make it, that there is no hope in this situation. And Jairus disagrees. He believes he knows someone that he can talk to, someone who can bring hope into this situation. And so as Jesus is making his way through the crowd, he finds Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue, on his hands and knees before him, face to the ground, no doubt tears running down his cheeks, explaining the situation and asking Jesus to come to his home in order to provide healing for his daughter. What does Jesus see when he looks down at Jairus? He sees humility, doesn't he? Jairus was ruler of the synagogue. Most people in that community understood if Jesus wanted to speak in the synagogue, it was Jairus who would give permission. They would have said, no, no, Jairus stands eye to eye with a teacher. Jairus stands toe to toe with someone like Jesus. And where does Jesus find Jairus? On his hands and knees and face before him. In humility. God loves that kind of humility. When we recognize his greatness and trust in him. He also sees faith in Jairus. Everyone else is saying there's no hope for this girl. Jairus knows where to find hope. And he has come and he has bowed himself down before Jesus because he says, no, in you there is hope. I know there's hope in you. Jesus sees this beautiful combination of humility and faith that he loves so much and he heads to Jairus' house with him. But there is a large obstacle in the way. What is that obstacle? It is the crowds. They begin to make their way through, but there are thousands upon thousands of people who all want to get at Jesus. They all want to touch him. They all want to be near him. Again, Luke says Jesus was almost crushed to death during this time as he is making his way through the crowds. And as a part of that crowd, there is a woman there who has been suffering deeply for the last 12 years. What is it that she has been suffering from? We're told that she has been bleeding externally. She's been hemorrhaging for the last 12 years. Now, now there was probably some sort of pain and discomfort and inconvenience in this. But I want us to understand there was also a deep emotional and social toll to what she was experiencing. Because she was constantly bleeding externally, she was unclean by Jewish law. And so she could not worship with her people. She could not join into social celebrations with her people. If she was married when this disease hit, chances are that her husband divorced her because to touch her was to become unclean. If she was not married, she certainly wasn't over the course of these 12 years because to touch her was to become unclean. This, this woman had not, not only suffered through the uncleanliness of this time period, but Mark's gospel tells us that she had spent every dime she had seeking a cure. 
And so she is now not only unclean, she is destitute. And none of these potential cures have worked. We read from the rabbis of this day what some of the potential cures were for something like this. They included things that were painful and embarrassing, like beating a person intentionally in other places of their body to create bruising to try and draw the blood away, or to have them drink things that were often toxic in order to try and cure this condition. One of my favorite cures written about by the rabbis was to have the person sit at a crossroads for most of the day, and then when they least expected it, to have a friend jump out to surprise them and yell, arise from thy flux. Shockingly, this hadn't worked for the woman. None of this had worked, but she has faith that if she can just touch Jesus' garments, she can be healed. And as Jesus moves by, he passes by close enough that she is able to reach out her hand and grab hold of the hem of his garment. And when she does, she is healed instantly. Can you imagine the joy that she experienced in that moment when she realized that her 12 years of suffering had come to an end? When she realized that she could now join with the worship of her people, join with the community of her people again. The amount of joy and rejoicing that must have been there in just that moment that I think all immediately fled away when she heard Jesus say, Who touched me? Look at the crowds that Jesus is in. Who touched me? The disciples point out to Jesus, are you kidding me here, Jesus? Right? Are you crazy? Everyone is trying to touch you right now. Everyone is pushing up against you. But Jesus knows that there's someone who has touched him in faith, who has received healing, and he wants her to come forward and declare what has happened. As this woman decides to come and kneel before Jesus, you can imagine the amount of fear. Uh, fear that he would be angry, fear that he would embarrass her, fear that he would take back the healing. But as she kneels before Jesus, she explains what has been going on for the last 12 years. She explains all of the failed cures. She explains her hope and her faith in him. And Jesus, in compassion, declares to her, daughter, go in faith, right? Go in peace, your faith has made you well. Right? Go in peace, your faith has made you well. In all of the Gospels, this is the only person that Jesus ever refers to as daughter. Not Martha, not Mary, not Mary Magdalene. This is the only person that Jesus ever refers to as daughter. And we have to see the parallel here, that there is this man, Jairus, who has had a daughter for 12 years, who loves her so deeply, he would do anything for her. And Jesus says, I also have this daughter. And she has been suffering for those 12 years. Those 12 years you've been enjoying your daughter. This woman has been suffering, and I love her, and I have compassion upon her. And he brings healing upon this woman and offers to her peace. And she goes healed can you imagine what Jairus was going through during this interaction? 
His daughter is fighting for her life. It may be that every second counts, and Jesus stops. And this couldn't have been a short interaction as she explains all that she had been through over the course of the last 12 years. And yet Jairus apparently waited there patiently. What's going on? And as Jesus proclaims this woman's healing, Jairus must have gotten even more excited. Yes, this is the kind of healing that I'm bringing you to my house for. But before they can leave in order to go to the house, servants arrive and they announce to Jairus, your daughter is dead. And the truck of despair runs over Jairus at this point. truck of despair runs over Jairus. And in the midst of that despair, as his heart is breaking, Jesus speaks these strange words to him. He says, do not fear, just believe. Jairus, you have shown extraordinary faith by coming to me and getting me involved in this situation, but I need even greater faith from you right now. Do not fear, just believe, Jairus. And they continue on to Jairus' house. When they arrive at his house, the mourners are there. Friends, family, neighbors, they've all come to mourn over this 12-year-old girl that is dead. When Jesus arrives and sees the mourners, he speaks a strange word to them and says, why are you guys sad? Come on, you guys. What's going on here? She's not dead. She is only asleep, he says. Now, Jesus is not here denying the fact that she is actually dead. But he is using this idiom of sleep used throughout the New Testament that teaches us about the short nature of death when Jesus is involved, the temporary nature of death when Jesus is involved. The mourners hear Jesus say she's not dead, she's only asleep, and they laugh at him. They don't laugh with him. Ha ha, Jesus, you're so funny. No, they laugh at him. What you are saying is foolishness, Jesus. We know death. She's dead. There's no coming back from this. So Jesus kicks all of the mourners out. And he brings in only the parents and Peter, James, and John. And then once they are inside, he takes that little girl by the hand. And he speaks to the dead girl and says, Talitha, Kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. Yeah. Jesus speaks the word, and death leaves. Jesus speaks the word, and life comes. Jesus speaks the word, and this 12-year-old girl rises up off of her bed, and we can only imagine what the scene was like as she threw her arms around her dad. Tears, no doubt, coming down his face again, and they embraced new life in her. Because Jesus has all authority over death and life. Jesus has all authority over death and life. And the disciples stand there, jaws hanging open once again at the power and the authority of Jesus. Who is this man, they asked. And the answer to that is, he is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That is what Mark 1.1 says. And because he is the Son of God, he has all authority. 
Mark has given us these accounts in order to show us he's the one with control over the visible creation. He speaks the word and the storms leave. He's the one with control over the invisible creation. He speaks the word and the most powerful demonic force in the region flees. He's the one with control over disease and illness and he brings healing to this woman. He's the one with control over what is clean. This unclean woman touches Jesus. Ceremonially, he should have become unclean. But he does not become unclean. She becomes clean because Jesus is cleanliness itself. He has all authority over what is clean. And he is the one with control over death and life. He speaks the word and the dead are brought to life. Jesus has all authority. And so the question for us is, will we come like Jairus and in humility and faith bow every part of our lives down before Jesus? Submit ourselves fully to him. Will we like this woman who was bleeding, reach out our hand and just try to grasp on to him. Recognizing that in him, life comes out of death. I want to invite you just to take a couple of minutes right now. And would you guys bow your heads with me? And I'd like to pray through these things that we've seen in the passage together. And we're going to work our way backwards. The passage declares that Jesus has all authority over death and life. The Bible says that because of our sins, we are, we are dead. We're separated from God. But through Jesus, we can have life and have it eternally and have it to the full. Have you entered into that life? If the answer to that is yes, would you praise him? Would you give him thanks for that life? Jesus has all authority over what is unclean and clean. When he touches something, it becomes clean. Is there any uncleanliness in your life that you need to deal with right now? Anything that you need to confess? 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Are there sins you need to confess? to experience his cleansing. Jesus makes us clean. Jesus is the one with control over the invisible creation. Are there any particular temptations, any particular attacks that you are facing from the enemy right now? Would you right now pray for God's strength against those things? Would you draw near to God? And he will draw near to you in order to give you the strength needed to stand up against those attacks. We saw that Jesus is the one with all authority over the physical creation over illness and healing. Is there anyone in your life that needs healing? Would you pray for them right now?